Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If this is your first Sunday here, we have been in 1 Corinthians for a while, for quite a few months. Uh, the good thing is, is that the messages typically stand alone, uh, so you're not running like months behind. Uh, but chapter 9 is where we are. If you want to access any of the other messages out of this uh, series, you can do that on our website. We've got a lot of messages on there. And uh, so we encourage you to do that. But chapter 9, 1 Corinthians is where we're going to be uh, this morning. I want to ask you a question before we begin to dig in. And, and I want you to really give this some thought. What would, you, what would people who know you, whether they be close friends, work associates, family members, what would the people who know you say is the overarching passion of your life? Now, not what you would say. Because I know what you're going to say. You're, you're going to say it's Jesus because you're sitting in church, right? Uh, it's like the little kid who was in uh, you know, first grade and uh, the, 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 or in first grade Sunday school, and the teacher said, all right, kids, what's gray? Has a bushy tail, eats acorns, lives in a tree. Little boy raised his hand and said, sounds like a squirrel, but I'm sure the answer is Jesus, right? So we have a, we have a real tendency when we're sitting in church, you know, to kind of make Jesus the right answer to everything and, and to you know, kind of fluff it up just a little bit. So really ask yourself, not what you think, what would other people say? is the overarching passion of your life. People who know you the best, when they look at you, they don't have to think about it, they don't have to do any research, what would they say is the overarching passion of your life? Now, for some of you, the answer would be some form of a hobby, right? They, some would say, well, it's, you know, it's hunting because you live for hunting season and you're in the woods every chance you get, whether it's in season or out of season. You just pray that God would forgive you for the times you cross property lines and hunt outside of season, that kind of stuff. But it's really your overarching passion. For others of you, maybe it's, uh, you know, scrapbooking or something. Probably not both of those at the same time. I doubt there are many hunters who would also say, I really love scrapbooking. It's probably not both of those. But it may be a hobby. You know, it may be a sport. You know, it may be for you, it's a sport like tennis or golf. Or, or maybe you're kind of past your playing days and now you just sort of live out that passion through other people. You watch it on TV. You, know, you love watching you know, whatever sports yours, football, basketball, baseball, whatever it may be. Maybe some would say that's your passion. For others, it's work. You know, people who know you best would say, man, this person is passionate about their work. That is the overarching passion of their life. They're constantly thinking about how to make their business better, how to increase their, their sales, how to grow their client list, how to, you know, how to increase you know, their service to their, to their customer base. They're always thinking about work. When they come home, they're thinking about work. When they go into sleep, they're talking about work. When they wake up, they're, you know, they're planning for their work. It, it, that's their passion. So what is the overarching passion of your life according to those who know you the best? And I would be willing to say that if, if the answer honestly is not Christ, and yet you're a follower of Jesus, then there's probably a reason for that. You, you probably have come to a place where you've kind of drawn a line in your life, figuratively speaking. You, you haven't literally drawn a line and, and said, I'm not going over this line with my passion with, for Jesus. But there's a line somewhere there in your heart, in your mind, where you've decided, I'm not going to cross that line in regards to my passion for Christ. And there are maybe a couple of reasons for that. For some of you, maybe it's because you've got your Jesus box, and he fits in that box, and, and you don't ever take Jesus out of the Jesus box to put him into other areas of your life. We guys are especially bad at this because we're so good at living compartmentalized lives. We kind of have our, our, our God box, and then we have our work box, and then we have our sports box, and then we have our weekend box. And for some of you, uh, the reason that Jesus is at the overarching passion is because he's got a box. Right? You keep him in that box, and Sunday morning, maybe 9 to noon or so, maybe Wednesday night or Sunday evenings, maybe a couple of, couple of moments during your week, you, know, you, 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 you take him out of the box, but by and large, he stays there. 
And people who know you, they, they don't see Christ as the overarching passion of your life, even though you've given your life to him, even though you've chosen to follow him. He's not really seen as the passion of your life. For others of you, you've drawn that line because you don't, you don't want to be a fanatic, right? You know people that you would say, man, that person, they're just, man, they're just, they're a religious nut. I don't want to be a religious fanatic. And so you've got this, this line in your mind and you won't cross that line because you don't want to be seen as a fanatic in regards to your relationship with Christ. So you've just chosen to be a fan. <laughs> and a lot like your favorite team, there are times when you're really high on Jesus and up on him, and there are times when you're not. There are times when you're, you're, you're specially passionate about him, but then there are times when he's just kind of off the radar. It's kind of like the off-season. You don't really think about him as much. And so people who know you would rightly say, yeah, Christ is not the passion of your life. And this morning, I want to look at a message entitled, No Limits. It's going to come right out of chapter 9 in the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and I want to say this up front, that this message is not, it's not designed to, to bring about guilt in your life. I've learned, if I've learned anything, I've learned one thing, is that guilt doesn't last for long. It's not a biblical motivator for change in our lives. I mean, Jesus never you know, encountered a person and just heaped guilt on them to make them follow him. It's not really a biblical motivator. And, and if guilt has been your motivation for Christ, by and large, chances are it didn't last for real long because we have really good ways of soothing our guilt. So I'm not trying to heap guilt on you this morning. Here's what I want to do when we look at this passage of Scripture, and it's a tough passage of Scripture. I want you to take a step back as a follower of Christ, and I want you just to consider the example that we're going to see here in chapter 9. And I want you to, to, to consider it, and I want you to gain new perspective. And, and my desire is that you will leave here differently than when you came in. Understanding this, that most people, most people are going to leave here this morning. I'm being negative. I'm just trying to be realistic that most people are going to leave here and you're not going to seriously consider what we're going to see here in chapter 9. You're not going to make any changes to your life. You're not going to be challenged in regards to your perspective. And there's not going to be any significant fundamental changes that come as a result of what we encounter here. But my desire is that there will be enough of us who respond to this to where it takes shape in our lives in such a way to where we're different because of it. Because what we're going to see here in chapter 9 is a dramatic example of what it looks like when the Christian life has no limits attached to it. And so chapter 9 in the book of 1 Corinthians is where we're going to be. Now for us to, to best understand chapter 9, we have to read it in context including chapter 8, really. And I preached on chapter 8 two weeks ago. We had Lord's Supper last Sunday. Two weeks ago, we covered all of chapter 8. It's on the website. You'll still get a lot out of this message, um, regardless of whether you were here or not two weeks ago. But to understand chapter 9 best, we have to see it in light of chapter 8. So let me just try to catch you up a little bit with what we looked at. One of the things we looked at a couple of weeks ago is that when we place our faith in Christ, God makes us free. Right? We, uh, we sang the song Shackles at the beginning. That wasn't orchestrated to help support this message. You know, we don't really do that. God just kind of lines all that up in a sense. But it is ironic today that we sing that song in light of this message this morning. Because when a person comes to Christ, uh, genuinely, we are free in Christ. We have freedom that doesn't come any other way you know, in, in our lives. In fact, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 shows us that. Look at what this passage says. It says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and did not be subject... Uh, 
subject again to a yoke of slavery. And so the Bible teaches us in Galatians 5 and a lot of different places that when you give your life to Christ, God makes you free in Christ. I mean, you have freedom in Jesus Christ. And yet we have to understand that with that freedom, there are times where the loving thing to do is to, is to, to put a little bit of a, of a restrictor plate on that freedom at times. Because you can do things as a Christian that may be allowed by Scripture, and there may be a gray area, and you have a different conviction than another Christian, but if you do it, you're going to cause another Christian to have a really hard time. They're going to stumble. There are things that you can do that God allows. They're not blatantly sinful in nature, but if you do them, it's going to cause another, sin, another Christian to stumble. And so two weeks ago, we looked at what does it mean to be free in Christ? What does it mean to have the liberty that our relationship with God gives us? And so we put together a little principle that came out of chapter 8. The principle is this, is that Christian, Christian freedom, as a, really as an act of love, takes on limitations at times. It shows love by accepting limitations. And chapter 8 is what dealt with that. Well, when we get to chapter 9, Paul is going to give an example from his own life of how he does that. And as he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, this group of Christians that are in the city of Corinth, a group of Christians that by and large, unless it was sinful, could go and do whatever they wanted to do, Paul is helping them to see that sometimes the loving thing to do is to accept limitations to your freedom. And then in chapter 9, he gives an example of how he does that. So let me give you the principle that comes out of chapter 9 that we're going to begin to work through it slowly. And the principle is this, is that God's right to your life, God has a right over your life, whole entire life, God's right to your life always supersedes any rights that you may have within your life. See, God has authority. That's what this is looking at, the authority over a person's life. When you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you gave God the authority, right? You relinquished your rights. You gave God the authority to do whatever he wants with you. And there are times when you may have certain rights as a person when God will supersede those rights and say, no, I've got something different for you to do. Let me, let me give an example. There are times you may, you may be tempted to say, you know what, I have a right to be angry. You know, uh, my, you know someone stabbed me in the back, someone you know, said bad things about me, you know, somebody did me wrong, I have a right to be angry. You know, the Bible doesn't say not to be angry, it just, it just, you know, it just tells us not to be angry and sin. For some of you, that's the verse you memorize first, right? I can be angry, just don't sin when I'm, when I'm angry. And, and you, you throw that rights card out there at times. You don't have a right to be angry. Well, there are times when God says, yeah, you may have a right to be angry about this, but justice is mine, and vengeance is mine, so why don't you just back it off a little bit and let me deal with the situation? Because God's right over your life supersedes any rights that you have within your life. There, there may be some of, of you that at times are tempted to say, you know, I have a right to, to pamper myself. I have a right to kind of put myself in first place every now and then. I work a hard job. I have a hard life. I face a lot of hardship. You know, I have a right to put myself as the king of the hill, as the queen of the hill. I have a right to pamper myself. And yes, God blesses us. And yes, God is, you know, desires for us to enjoy life and, and to enjoy the blessings he gives us. But there are times when we don't have a right, we never have a right to put ourselves first over somebody else. God's right and and, and authority over our life supersedes any rights that we feel like we may have within our lives. You know, there are times as well for some that they feel like, you know, I got a right to speak my mind. Have you ever met a person who said, I have a right to speak my mind? Have you ever met somebody like that? 
really did you enjoy it when they spoke their mind? <laughs> you know, usually, you know, speak the truth and love thing is minus the love oftentimes in that context. Yeah, you know, usually, you know, when a person feels like they have the right to speak their mind, they're about, they're going to blister you. So you better like just latch onto something and hang on. But, you know, I've got a right to speak the truth. I've got a right to say what's on my mind. I've got a right to say what's in my heart. You know, we do. There are times where that's extremely needed. You know, in marriage, for example, husband and wife need to communicate. They need to be sharing their hearts, sharing their minds, sharing their views and their opinions. But there are times when God's will supersedes that right. And God may at times say, you know what, you just need to sit on that thought. You need to keep that to yourself, and you need to let me address the situation. And so those are some examples of how even though we have rights because we're free in Christ, we have to remember God has authority. We can't just go and do whatever we want. God has authority over our lives. He has a right over us because we relinquished our rights the day we gave our lives to Christ. He has a right over us that supersedes any rights that we have within our lives. Back during the Crusades in the 12th century, uh, you know, that was a religious war. The Holy War is kind of what, what it's termed. It was a religious war, and uh, you know, the Crusaders at times would hire mercenaries to come. History tells us this, to come and fight on their behalf. And so whenever the crusaders would hire these mercenaries, uh, because it was a religious war, this is horrible theology, but this is what they did, they they said, well, we need to baptize you. Since this is a religious war, you're kind of being hired to fight on our side. We need to baptize you for you to fight for us. And so they would baptize these mercenaries, and, uh, and, and what history tells us is that more often than not, when they would baptize those mercenaries, the, the, these, these warriors would go under the water with their sword held up out of the water. <laughs> and it was a very bold statement. It said, you may be baptizing me, so to speak, you know, in dedication to God, and, and that's not even theologically accurate, but that's what they were doing. You may be baptizing me in dedication to God, hey, but this sword belongs to me. And we do the same exact thing many times in our lives, don't we? To where we will follow Christ with limitations. There are limits to our following of Christ. And we'll follow him, but we'll say, God, you can have all of my life, but you can't have, my, you can't have the, the work part of my life. Because I sometimes have to make some, some hard calls, and sometimes I don't really treat people real well, and sometimes I may shade the lines a little bit, but you know a man's got to make a living, you know, a person's got to make a living, pay for their bills, pay for their, support their family. So God, you can't be a part of my work life. That belongs to me. For others, it may be the, the, you know, the wallet or the pocketbook, that, God, this money is mine. Yeah, I worked for it. I earned it. This is mine. You can have all of me except for this. Or, God, you can have all of me except for my weekends. Or, God, you can have all of me except for my dating life if you're a single person. God, you can have all of me except for this particular area. These belong to me. And what Paul is saying here in chapter 9 is that if that's our mindset, that, God, you can have slices of me, little slivers of me, and it's going to make most of a pie, but probably not the whole thing, Paul says, that's just ridiculous. And what Paul says is, I'm going to show you here in chapter 9 what it looks like whenever God has all of a person. Whenever a person understands that my rights were laid down at the cross, that he has total right over my life. And I'm going to show you what it looks like, Paul says, in this chapter, when a person chooses to put themselves in second place, to put Jesus Christ first, and, and even to notch themselves down further, and to put others before themselves. Paul says, I'm going to show you what this looks like. And what it's going to show is that God's right over your life, completely, totally, supersedes any rights that you feel that you have within your life. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump in here in chapter 9. I'm not going to read every verse. I usually do. There are times that I don't just because of the way the the passage lays out. Today's one of those days. I'm not going to read every single verse in chapter 9. You can do that on your own. But I'm going to pull out the ones that I feel are going to give us the best picture of what this passage is saying. 
And so what you'll notice here in chapter 9 is that Paul is going to begin to lay out the rights that he has as an apostle. The rights that he has as a person who has been called to proclaim the message of the gospel vocationally for, for living, basically. Paul's going to begin to deal with that. Look at what he says here in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, looking down through verse 4. Paul writes and he says, am I not free? <laughs> am I not an apostle? You know, he says to the Christians there in Corinth, he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. Paul spent 18 months in the city of Corinth. 18 months there after he led so many of them to Christ. He spent 18 months there nurturing them, growing them, pouring into them. He says, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In other words, he's saying, you are the evidence that if I needed evidence that God called me into ministry, he says to the Corinthians, hey, you're it. You're the seal of my apostleship. You're the evidence that God has used me to reach people. Verse 3, he says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? See, Paul was being scrutinized by, those, by some in the city of Corinth, in the church there. He's being scrutinized. He, he was being treated wrongly. People were questioning his authority. And so what Paul is saying here, he, he's dealing with some of those those scrutinizations. Some were saying he, that he, he was less than other leaders within the church. And Paul says here, hey, if we're going to talk about rights, do I not have a right to eat and drink whatever I want? I'm a follower of Jesus. He set me free. I can eat and drink whatever I want. He goes on in the next verse, verse 5, he says, look at what it says. Verse five, there we go. He says, do we not have a right? There's that word again. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas. Now, Paul was, was more than likely single here at this point. Uh, he was uh, surrounded by others in ministry who were married. Uh, but the Corinthian believers were not playing fairly. Some, they said, could take a wife. Others, they said, couldn't. Paul says, do we not have a right to take along a wife if we're married? They are followers of Christ. Do we have to leave them behind to come and minister? I mean, don't we have a right to do this? Look at what he says in the next uh, the next passage, beginning in verse 6. He says, Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? I mean, who plants a vineyard, doesn't eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? So Paul goes back to the Old Testament. He says, For it's written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. See, the issue is there, and you can leave the passage up there on the screen. The issue is that people were, 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 were putting Paul in a place of not being able to support himself from the work of the ministry. That's why he's going into this whole picture. He says, listen, even a farmer is able to eat off the, 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 the food that is produced from what he planted. <laughs> even someone who threshes wheat is able to enjoy the, the benefit of getting a meal out of the work he's put in. And so what Paul's saying here is, why, why are we in ministry not able to support ourselves from the work of the ministry? Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. In other words, Paul is saying in the first part of chapter 9, he says, I've got rights. And I could have exercised these rights a long time ago over you guys. I've got a right to eat and drink whatever I want. I've got a right to bring along whoever I want in my ministry. I've got a right to support myself from the ministry. But what Paul did was he laid aside those rights 
<laughs> because of God leading him to do differently. Paul was a tent maker. I mean, while, while he could have been 24-7 engaged in ministry, he, for at least a portion of his ministry, was supporting himself by repairing and constructing and selling tents. That's what he was by trade. So Paul lays out all these rights that he has, and, and he's doing this for a reason because he says, what I want you to understand, Corinthian Christians, is that I laid down these rights because God had a higher call on my life. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I laid my rights down. I could have brought whoever I wanted, eat and drink whatever I wanted. I, I could have uh, made a living from the gospel if I had wanted to. But no, I laid, I laid down these rights because God and his authority over my life, his right over my life supersedes my own personal rights within my life. And for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of not causing some of you to stumble and to become uh, 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 ultimately disengaged from your faith, I've chosen to lay aside my rights to reach people. Verse 17, he goes on. He says, I do this voluntarily. If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. If against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Paul voluntarily laid aside his right. There would be a reward waiting for him because of his obedience to God. Verse 18, he says, What then is my reward that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? <laughs> he, he says, Listen, I just want to offer the gospel without a dime in return. I had a right to make a living off of it, but I'm going to choose to do this because of what God's leading me to do, he says. I'm doing this for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says as he goes on in a little bit of a bigger block of Scripture. The next verse, he begins to talk about what he took upon himself. He says in verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. You know, it's hard to make yourself a slave, isn't it? When you think of slavery, that horrible period of time in our own nation's history, that was something that was imposed upon other people. What Paul is doing here, the, the word slave carries a little bit of a different nuance. If we could unpack the baggage from our own nation's history, it means differently in the first century than what it does to us. But regardless, Paul said, I have made myself voluntarily a slave to other people. I have voluntarily put myself beneath other people for the sake of the gospel so that I may win more. Verse 20, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, I became as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. To those who were without the law, I became as one without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who were without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And then he just summarizes, I have become all things to all men, so that by all means I may save some. <laughs> but that, that, that is an amazing statement. Because what Paul is saying there is, is, is something that we have a real hard time uh, embracing ourselves, is that I don't care what is involved, if it will enable me, without sinning, to reach another person, I'll gladly go there. If it's, if it's to become weak and to lay aside my strength, I'll become weak to reach the weak. And he's not giving us a way to justify sin. He's not saying, hey, maybe I can just start taking drugs so that I can reach those who are addicted to drugs with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not saying that. It sounds ludicrous, but it's amazing how much sin we can justify by that one passage of Scripture. 
Now, Paul's saying, I will go to any distance. There is no limit to what I will do to die to myself, to lay aside my rights for the sake of reaching another person with the message of the gospel. Probably 10 years ago, um, I did something during Christmas time here at our church, and uh, I had wanted to do it for a long time. I never had the opportunity, and then when I was a pastor, I had the opportunity, so I did it. At Christmas time, I decided to dress up like a person who was homeless, and so uh, I had a person from SCAD come before services, came to the house, and she did the makeup and just, you know, turned me into a person older than I was by about 40 or 50 years, and I uh, went in my dad's closet and got some clothes to wear because he's a lot older than I was there, and, uh, and so I came and I camped out at the front of our church right out here off of uh, the Johnny Mercer entrance. Some of you may remember that. And I set out a little blanket there, and I sat there as a person in disguise, long before Undercover Boss came around, and, uh, and sat there in disguise just to see the reaction. And, of course, it all played into the message during the service. I came in at a set time and came up here and just tied in how, how we often miss Christ because we expected something differently when he came in the first century. But the, the thing that happened there was intriguing to me because I would see people from our church come riding right past me and turn in just right down from me and go park and go on into the, to the service. And there I was sitting uh, on, the, on the grass, on a towel, with really nothing. There were probably two people that I remember that came out. One brought me a sandwich, I think it was, you know, and uh, somebody else asked if I needed something. And, uh, and the amazing thing to me was, after it was all said and done, to think back on it and to think, I wonder why no one chose to come over to where I was and to meet me and my point of need. Uh, to them, I was just another person who, uh, who was in need. They didn't have a clue who it was. You know, as I look back on that, I think it's partly because for some, it was just too busy of a morning. It's too much out of the routine. Got to get into church, got to get my seat, got to worship God. Too busy to either notice or to do anything about the guy who was very obviously in need just a few feet away. And for others, I think it was probably a place where it was just a little too uncomfortable to lay aside what it would take to identify with someone so unlike themselves. You see, Paul said, I don't care who you are. If you need the gospel, man, I'll bring it. I don't care who you are. If you're a Jew, I'll become a Jew. If you're a person who lives by the law, I'll be a person who lives by the law. If you're weak, I'll become weak. I don't care who you are. There are no limits to my, to my life lived for the person of Jesus Christ, and I will do whatever it takes to reach you with the gospel. It was a powerful message when Paul says this to the Corinthian believers because he's showing them, here are my rights, and here's what I've done to lay them down. Here's why I've done it. Here's why, because of Jesus and because of you. He closes out that chapter in verse 24 through verse 27. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. When he speaks of being disqualified there, he's talking about losing rewards from God for his faithfulness. Paul says there are no limits 
no limits. And when it comes to my rights, I fully understand that overarching all of my perceived rights is the fact that I have a God whose right over my life goes beyond everything else. Now, I saw in the news recently this past week where a store owner, I can't remember the city where he was, but a store owner who was of a different nationality had raised his nation's flag above the U.S. flag outside of his business. Some of you may have seen that. And the dramatic part of the story was that you know, someone there in that community came and he you know, very dramatically lowered the flag and he cut off the other nation's flag and he raised the U.S. flag up to where it, you know, to where it belonged. The significance of that is that the, the U.S. flag, whenever it flies on the flagpole, flies highest. It's the most significant. If you see a state flag flying, it's always going to be beneath the U.S. flag. You know, it kind of reminds me of the fact that, that we as people, it's figuratively speaking, kind of fly a flag over our own lives as well, don't we? And those flags are from a variety of places. You know, for some of you, the flag that flies the highest over your life, like, like I said before, is some passion that you have, but it's not Christ. You know, for some of, uh, of you, and maybe even a significant number, you know, the flag of Christ flies beneath a lot of flags in your life. And when you think about the question of what is first and what is highest and what is most and are there limits to your following of Jesus, it's a question you've never really considered. He has his place. Well, it's not first, but he he has his place in your life. You know, I wonder for you if you've ever thought as you fill in the blank with what you do in your life, maybe say, for example, you're you're a teacher. Would you say that you're a teacher that happens to be a Christian? Or would you say that you're a Christian who just happens to be a teacher? There's a big difference in those two statements. Maybe you're a business owner and you know Jesus. You made a decision a long time ago to follow Christ. And maybe for you, you'd say, you know, I'm a business owner that happens to be a Christian. In other words, running my business is most important. But, uh, you know, there are times when Jesus peeks through. I also happen to be a Christian. Or would you say, no, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I gave my life to him X amount of years ago or months ago. Jesus is, who makes me, is what makes me who I am. I follow him with all my heart. He's first, he's highest, he's most of my life. Oh, and by the way, I also happen to run a business on the side. So fill in the blank with what you do. You, you could be a host of things. Would you say you're that who happens to be a Christian? Or you're a follower of Jesus who just happens to be something else? See, there is no limit. There's no line in the sand from a biblical picture of how far we'll go for Jesus. He's everything. He's highest, he's most, he's biggest, he's best. The question is really, I think for us, is he all that in our lives? Let's pray. Paul wrote this letter to a group of Christians, challenging them in their commitment to Christ. But I think as well we have to understand and remember that there are those who've never given their lives to Christ. Maybe for you that's been the case. You've never made the decision to turn from your sin and to to begin following a new Savior in life. Maybe you've never laid your sin down and invited Jesus to come in and to forgive you and to take over. Today is a great opportunity for you to do that. And right where you sit this morning, believing that Jesus is God, that he died for you, and that you need him desperately because of sin in your life. If you'll invite him in and choose with all your heart to follow him from this day forward, he'll forgive you and he'll take over. And so, God, we pray today, regardless of the need, 
Lord, that we would follow where you lead us. For those who need a Savior, may they, right where they sit today, invite Jesus to come in and forgive and become their Savior, their Lord. And Lord, for those of us who've already done that, I pray that, that we would leave here fully devoted, fully yielded. Lord, that, that your flag flies the highest in our lives, God. That you're not just two, three, four, five, ten, twenty rungs down the ladder, Lord. That, that it's very evident to those who know us that you are the very passion of our lives. And so, God, often to get there, we have to make decisions, sometimes hard decisions. And I pray through this time of invitation, Lord, that we'd make the right decisions as you work in our hearts and as you lead us, that we'd follow. And so, God, bless the choices we make today. Bless this time of invitation. We praise you for what you'll do. And it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.